Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. What you missed this week. I'm Scarlett Fu. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Closed show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg Television. What'd you miss? Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. This week, one of the biggest global stories was the continued spread of the coronavirus outbreak. The global health emergency has upended everyday life in China and the region. Schools and employers have closed, weighing on supply chains of many industries, including agriculture. We discussed how the virus is impacting the global food supply with Matthew Wadiak. He's co-founder of Blue Apron and founder and CEO of Cook's Venture. We began by asking about the impact of pandemics on food supply. First and foremost, we export about $10 billion of agricultural products to China every year and import about $5 billion worth of agricultural products from China. And as we're thinking about that, that affects the price of corn, soy, agricultural commodities domestically in the U.S. that are used in animal feed, that are used for human consumption, and that are used for domestic food security. So when you see pandemic-level outbreaks of disease in different parts of the world, Mm -hmm. we have to think to ourselves, where is the food security associated with our domestic production of food, and how does commerce affect that? Mm -hmm. So these are big questions to grapple with, and certainly not something you can answer right away. I just wonder, are you seeing the way people in your industry, companies in your industry are handling food differently in the wake of the coronavirus? I think people are are starting to realize that uh, domestic grain for animal use in America to feed animals, the majority of of the grain that we grow, of course, is for animal feed in the U.S. So thinking about how to build more security around that is increasingly important. And you see farmers who are struggling today economically to make ends meet because the price of corn and soy has depreciated aggressively with all of the global trade agreements and also disease issues. So I'm seeing folks in the industry really focusing more on strengthening their domestic supply. So strengthening that domestic supply chain, you have to do that in the context of a rising, a growing population, Mm -hmm. uh, just greater appetite or greater consumption uh, from that population. Then, of course, you're dealing with climate issues, too. I mean, you're talking about the Corn Belt essentially moving north and uh, things that we used to be able to plant in one state. Mm -hmm. Now you're planting in another state and things get shifted around. So, I mean, how do you prep for that? How do you plan for that? I love that question because we now live in a corn economy, our our nation's (laughs) biggest crop, as we all know, where over 40 percent of our corn goes to ethanol use. So Mm -hmm. you hear this sort of rumor that goes around proliferates that, um, you know, world population is going to double by the year 2050. Mm -hmm. We now know that's not true. And likewise, we're giving 40 percent of our corn to make, um, you know, energy at an energy loss. Mm -hmm. So growing uh, crops in a more regenerative manner, using better crop rotations, managing soil in a more protective nature is something we're focused on in my company. And beyond that, stop, you know, growing gasoline and Mm -hmm. instead grow food for people. And that creates more security domestically. Mm -hmm. 
I want to talk a little bit about your product, uh, your Pioneer Chicken. Mm -hmm. uh, these are chickens that can eat a diverse diet. Uh, they're raised in about two months, and it's it's free range. They they roam around. Pasture raised. Yep. Pasture raised. Okay. What kind of demand is there for your chickens? from outside of the U.S. Is that a possibility right now? And if not, at what point can it be? So it's really important to have diversity of diet in an animal. So we breed heirloom uh, breed animals, our pioneer chickens. Mm -hmm. And not only do we breed better health into the bird and a bird that doesn't suffer and can actually go outside, but part of that breeding process is making the, sure the animal can digest things besides corn and soy. Mm -hmm. And that works not only domestically, but internationally, because not every country just grows commoditized corn and soy. Mm -hmm. People have different local crops. Having an animal that can digest more effectively mm. diversity of diet in different geographies globally is really important for creating food security in developing nations. So how do you do that at a cost that's favorable to consumers? Because right now, a lot of these chickens, uh, I mean, they cost a lot. I mean, you're, you can pay 20 bucks for some of these compared to sort of a conventional chicken in the grocery store that might be half that price. So how do you scale up to feed 300 plus million people here in the U.S. at a cost that many of them can afford? That, great question. It's not really about the input costs of the the feed mm -hmm. or a chicken that takes 15 days longer to grow. Right. It's creating systems that lower the variable costs mm -hmm. in terms of production. So we have a plant that can produce 700,000 chickens a week in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. And by supporting the community and creating jobs in Oklahoma in a plant that has scale to it, mm -hmm. we're able to offer a consumer price that's on par with other grocery store chickens. Now, your chickens are sold through some retailers on Cook's website and also through Fresh Direct. Mm -hmm. And I just want to bring it back to coronavirus. That's in contrast to wet markets in China right. and Southeast Asia, where shoppers, usually Chinese people, like to pick their meat and their fish fresh, alive, and then get it slaughtered to ensure that it hasn't been frozen. How do you fix that system? I mean, based on what you know, what you've observed, how do you fix that system and keep some of the benefits of that, yet do so while ramping up biosecurity? Yeah, um, you know... There was a time in the U.S. where we had similar systems to wet markets in different parts of the world, too. But as the middle class continues to rise in different parts of the world, globally, we're seeing that retail is overtaking wet markets. And I think with the food safety concerns that we all have today, you'll see wet markets uh, diminishing, retail increasing, and more share of wallet going into high-dollar retail sales. We also got a view on how the virus could impact the global economy with Scott Kennedy. He is senior advisor and trustee chair in Chinese business and economics at CSIS. We began by asking if the disruption over the past few weeks would be enough to dent global growth. Uh, well, I think it, it will, because even though some companies are coming back to work, uh, they're not all going to go from zero to 100 mm -hmm. right away. It's going to take some time. Uh, and China is a much bigger part of the global economy than it was in 2003 when SARS. Mm -hmm. it's, it's now 17% of the global economy. It's, everyone depends on it. And so I think we're going to see it take some time. Uh, and the, st the science on the virus is still not clear. Yeah. Uh, and Chinese themselves are hesitant to travel, uh, to go to work. Uh, and so I, th I think it's going to take us at least another week or two before we can really start projecting which of these pathways it's going to take and how quickly we'll resume growth. All right. Well, in the meantime, it's definitely taking a hit on growth. And we're also seeing it lift prices, consumer prices. Um, we've seen uh, pork prices, for instance, gain the most on record. Food prices are soaring overall. What does that mean going forward in terms of how much room the authorities have to address 
the slowdown in the economy and the rise in prices. Yeah, so they're going to have to intervene in the economy much more than they wanted to. So we're going to, you should expect a much larger stimulus mm -hmm. uh, across the board and, and ways to, to encourage consumer spending, encourage uh, production. What you're going to see is a much greater role of the state is something that everyone's been fighting against. They want China's huh. state to retreat. Yeah. Uh, and so that's going to also hit Chinese productivity. So you're going to see numbers in productivity fall. Um, of course, the Chinese have no problems taking on more debt, uh, but we don't want that. So I think the, the broader story yeah. is a greater challenge for the Chinese economy. With regards to just the state expanding its role here, I mean, obviously that's been lauded on one hand as sort of helping to maybe uh, stem this crisis. Uh, but there's also some concern here that for all the folks who are expecting China to become a much more of an open market, whether we've witnessed this through the trade war between the U.S. and China and now its response to the coronavirus, is, it, is there any sort of expectation here that we are going to see much more of an opening of that market? Uh, optimists hope so. Certainly if you... Are you an optimist? <laughs> uh, not really. Uh, those who struck the trade deal with the Chinese mm -hmm. obviously thought, well, they've got to buy all this stuff. They've got to uh, open up these sectors. They will liberalize. On the other hand, the Chinese reaction, I think, by Xi Jinping, especially in the face of the virus, is we're going to throw the power of the state. We're going to increase yeah. the role of the party uh, in the economy. We're going to be on a war footing. Uh, and so that will get the job done. That will get the numbers to where they want them to be, or at least that's what they'll tell us. But it doesn't get the economy on a glide path to a more liberalized, open place that's easier for us to do business with. So with the greater role of the state expected, what does that mean for tensions or relations, maybe the better word, with the United States? Um, President Trump is always looking for leverage, and yes. of course they're, they, they haven't started on stage two of, or phase two of the trade talks, but how does that affect our willingness or China's willingness to make concessions to get sure. to a trade deal? So I think two places it's really important. Um, in Washington, uh, where I spend a lot of my time, uh, from what I can tell, the administration doesn't want to give China a break at all with regard to the beginning of the purchases, which the agreement goes into effect this Friday. Hmm. They're going to expect them still to hit every target of the $200 billion uh, over the next two years and the $73 billion in year one. Uh, and, so, and they're ready to enforce that through uh, pain if they, if they must. In addition, because of the virus, I know the WHO has said that their Chinese are cooperating, and they haven't challenged the Chinese numbers directly. But in Washington, there's a lot of skepticism, not just amongst the anti-China crowd, mm -hmm. but against even some of the, the scientists in the CDC and elsewhere. And that just furthers the skepticism and mistrust. So I don't think that this fuels a solution and the 2020 that we thought we would get by the end of, uh, of the trade war, but actually probably this year we're going to see more tensions than we expected. So if those tensions ramp up, I mean, we don't even talk about phase two anymore. That's kind of a, a assumed that that's not going to happen or at least not any tangible uh, discussions on that for quite some time, maybe till after the election here in the U.S. Uh, is there any sense, though, that we can sort of say that the relationship between the U.S. and China is at least going to be better than, I guess, what it was Today. If better than free fall yeah. is better, then that's where we are. We, we, have, some, we have a reasonable amount of stability. Yeah. People want to address the virus. They want, both sides want to implement the different aspects of the phase one deal, but we won't get to phase two. I think what you're going to see actually is even though the Trump administration has rightly been criticized for not engaging in multilateralism, uh -huh. you're going to see more efforts with the Europeans and the Japanese mm -hmm. and at the WTO pushing on subsidies and other elements mm -hmm. of the China model as opposed to making progress bilaterally. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Wall Street is working to live up to its sustainability promises. But so far, that effort is not enough to quiet climate activists. Protesters barricaded BlackRock's Paris office this week, less than a month after Chairman and CEO Larry Fink said he would put climate change at the center of the firm's investment strategy. We got some insight from Andrew Caroli, Distinguished Professor of Management at my alma mater, Cornell University. We began by asking about what BlackRock's actions would actually look like. The topic is, is extremely relevant and timely. Um, new research is coming out that indicates, Scarlett, that um, a lot of these um, initiatives, for example, from the Financial Stability Board led by uh, Bank, of, uh, Bank of England Governor uh, Mark Carney, um, Mr. Bloomberg, and the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, while there's been a lot of take-up in terms of signatories among corporates and asset managers and asset owners, what, what research is showing is that, in fact, the level of actual real engagement um, by asset managers with respect to corporates in terms of compelling them uh, to disclose you know, carbon-related assets and greenhouse gas emissions are less than full, fully revealing. Hmm. And, uh, and real actions in the terms of, for example, negative screening or exclusionary types of actions or, for example, formal divestment, uh, shareholder proposals, proxies, it's really still a very small minority of, of a lot of these asset managers that are actually compelling corporates to engage on those terms. So when we talk about this engagement, Professor, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, for a lot of these companies, this really comes down to whether uh, climate change and some of the issues uh, surrounding that are going to affect their bottom line. The companies that have moved on this in the insurance industry and some other industries are the ones that clearly see uh, a potential impact on their bottom lines. If there's no impact, what impetus is, is, them for, is there for them to move? Well, I think that's exactly right. Thank you. Uh, in fact, there's a number of new research papers that have come to the fore and I think are getting some attention. Um, in fact, there's a special issue of a journal with which I was affiliated, uh, the Review of Financial Studies, that in March uh, of this year is going to be issuing uh, eight actual studies that document, in fact, how climate change-related risks are actually revealed to be priced and actually should be therefore front and center for investors. Oh, so BlackRock, for all of its efforts here, is still the world's largest developer. <laughs> Sorry, the world's largest investor in coal plants. Vanguard is not too far behind at more than $10 billion each. Can they just pull out? I mean, how, how do you reverse that course? The actual process of divestment? Uh, it, it's, 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 it's not uh, an easy question for many. But I think what's different now than yesterday, and I think that is uh, at the front of the attention of firms like BlackRock and Vanguard, is that these, uh, these risks are real. They are measurable. 
in better ways than we had way, in, in better ways than we had before, and they actually can be shown to have material impact on the underlying valuations of the firms. And that's that's got to bring bring uh, bring more attention uh, from from all. Professor, what's the responsibility of MSCI and S&P and these other index managers here? Do they need to change their standard of measurement? Yeah, I, th I think that's what, what has been uh, perhaps uh, notwithstanding best efforts on behalf of commercial vendors, uh, they have been less than, than, than optimal in terms of the types of metrics that they've invoked to try and capture the extent to which uh, corporates are disclosing. What I think the new research uh, in this volume that's going to come out in March is showing is that when you go one layer below um, these types of enumerated, enumerated uh, indexes of dis disclosures on uh, climate change, greenhouse, greenhouse gas, mitigation and adaptation um, uh, procedures that firms are taking, uh, you, get, you get a lot more insights than you would have before. Less than 4% of black female entrepreneurs actually make it to the $1 million mark. So Mahisha Dellinger is working to change all of that. I sat down with the pioneer of the natural hair market and we discussed Mahisha's journey to grow her company into an award-winning brand and her show on the Oprah Winfrey Network. Well, I actually got started at Intel Corporation in a conference room. I was really disillusioned with corporate America mm -hmm. and my chances to grow. I didn't really grow fast as I wanted to and I wanted to take control of my destiny. So I decided to branch it on my own. But I wasn't sure what I wanted to do exactly until I took a vacation with my fiance at the time, now my husband. And I started to look at the trends in natural hair care and saw that there was a real need and shift in women of color going back to the natural textures. And there weren't a lot of options in the marketplace, so I decided to go after that opportunity and create it myself. So this was an untapped market that untapped you were market. looking at at the time. How do you think it's changed since you entered the market? Well, we were one of the four that created this space in Target back in 2007. Uh, the buyer created a space just for this purpose of newly transitioning women. Today, it, there are over 30 brands in that same category and, and in more stores beyond Target. But we really did pioneer it, but now it's overly saturated. So, it, But you know what? There's a lot of opportunity and still space because people are still buying. And it hasn't shifted. The pie is growing. And I think there's a space for all of us. You mentioned that you were working in the corporate world. You were at Intel, I believe, in marketing. Yes. And you shifted to another corporate job. So you didn't leave it right away when you decided to start your business. Correct. How did your experience in the corporate world spill over or influence the decisions you made uh, when you were starting your own business? You know, Intel was a great learning pad for me because I learned so much and it was the quality of excellence that was demanded every day that I brought over into my business. Mm -hmm. I learned so much at Intel and it gave me the discipline, the drive, the stamina, um, everything I need, education, all of it. It really was helpful. What about funding? When you started your own business, how did you go around uh, finding, finding the funding necessary to do that? Because it takes a lot up front. Right. You know, Despite having exceptional personal credit, I could not get a small business loan. And I was really discouraged by that initially, and I decided, you know, I'll have to start smaller than I expected. Mm -hmm. So I used my personal savings. I had about 30000 and I used that to start. I wanted to go a lot bigger, 
But you know, in hindsight, it was better because I actually grew it organically over time, and I was really di- diligent with my spending, mm-hmm. really strategic with my spending, and I really was smart with my spending because I had such a small amount to start with, and it winded up giving me um, more more experience to start. But also, I was able to make my s- mistakes on a smaller scale mm-hmm. before I was really recognized. Mm-hmm. Had I started really big, I could have failed really bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's your thoughts on uh, the growth prospects for your business and anything that goes to the consumer right now? Is it in online uh, e-commerce or is there still a need to have it in the physical realm? I think there's still opportunity for both. I mean, there are a lot of, we see brick and mortar stores collapsing, which is so sad to me. I hate to see any business fail. It's mm-hmm. just really devastating. But we're seeing some that are really excelling, like Target. Mm-hmm. Target's up double digits this year. Mm-hmm. And they're doing it because they took a strategic approach to it. And they said, let me see what my customer wants to see from us. And they revamped all their stores. And they thought people thought they were crazy, given the Amazon world and everything that's happened with Amazon. But the remodel was exactly what the customer wanted. And they grew double digits after that. I bring this up because as a new brand, as a small brand, you have to, of course, try to go after the customer online, but you also need the placement of the bigger box stores like a Target. So it's an interesting uh, thought process in terms of how you want to position yourself right. for each of these different venues. Well, not everyone wants to be in retail. Um, I'm in both. So we have our obviously our website, curls.biz. Mm-hmm. We're in every major retailer you can think of, and we're also on Amazon. Uh, so we do a little of all of it, I think. Um, but some businesses prefer just online. Some are all Amazon. Some are all just OTC drugstores, so it depends. It depends. Now, your story caught the attention of Oprah Winfrey, a mogul in her own right, and soon you're hosting your own show on the Oprah Winfrey Network. Talk yes. a little bit about what your mission is in, this, in your show. Well, you know, so in line with my personal mission, um, Oprah saw a need to help women of color with their businesses. Mm-hmm. Black women and their black-based businesses are up 300%, but less than 4% make it to the million-dollar mark. So Oprah wanted to help bridge that gap. And I was already doing that informally in my real life. Mm -hmm. So our two missions collided and it happened to be a perfect harmony. Um, So the goal was to really help women get to their level of success where they are dreaming and envisioning for their business, but don't really know how to do that and need the tools, the information, the resource, the access to do so. Mm -hmm. And so each episode helped one business and they were either product or service based. Mm -hmm. We didn't really focus on either. We just took the best business that needed the most help and also had the resources in place. And we gave them what they needed to be successful. And seven out of the eight businesses actually turned around. So what is the key obstacle to getting to that million dollar mark? You mentioned that as, as kind of this threshold that was difficult to get towards. What, why For is us, that? it's a lot. Again, it goes back to the, having the information of what you need to do and how to grow, the mentor, the education, access to funding, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. tools, someone that can help you propel yourself forward. Other cultures have a built-in help system, mm-hmm. and a lot of times we don't really have that access that we need. And so that's why I make it my personal mission to create my Black Girls Make a Man's Academy, mm-hmm. have my show Mind Your Business with Mahesh on OWN. I mentor people on the side to really help in that space because I believe to whom much is given, much is required. Mm-hmm. And so I'm in this space. I've learned so much, and I didn't do it with the mentor. And had I had a mentor or my show or Black Girls Make a Man's Academy, I would have been further along a lot faster. So I feel like I need to reach back and help those that are in my position that really want to make another life for themselves. Now, when it comes to the state of funding, black female entrepreneurs, 
is uh, pursuing a small business loan something that you would not recommend at all and they should look for unconventional paths or have things progress to a point where that is an option? I think I, I suggest now not to go in debt initially. Mm-hmm. If you can avoid it, don't go into debt. Because I thought, like I said, later, at first I really wanted that small business loan, but later I realized it was a blessing in disguise because I was able to learn on a small scale. And if you go into debt out the gate, that can be hard if you don't succeed. Mm -hmm. And I'm really conservative with my funds and how I spend my money. And debt can be a bad thing and it can send you over to the top and help you actually go out of business. Mm. So I suggest if you can, get an angel investor. Um, crowdfunding is a great opportunity mm-hmm. where people in your community will actually come to your bat and help you. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a company, uh, new makeup brand that did crowdfunding um, in Georgia and she like was raised like a million dollars and didn't need to go after any small business loans. And it was beneficial for her and she did amazing in her job. She did a great job with her business. Do you invest in other people's companies like that? Are you an angel investor then? You know, I have, but I really have to have the passion behind it, not just the numbers, but me really driving the business and want to be a consumer. So there's several that I have helped, Uh but there's others, a lot more that I've actually helped get into retail. Just if I, I have to see the product, have the passion for it, see that they have the structure and the wherewithal and actually are really drivers and motivated and will work hard and see the vision. I'm, I have to see all of that before okay. I invest. But I do like to see businesses that I can invest in because I know there are a lot of great ideas out there. So you put them through the paces, make sure right. that they tell you what you need to hear and then kind of help them uh, with the resources that you can offer when the Absolutely. Time comes. Like we just had our Black Girls Making Millions Academy event uh, mid-year in June, mm-hmm. the very first one. It was amazing. We, it was a four-day retreat with classes, workshops, seminars, excursions, but a lot of networking as well. Mm-hmm. And then we had our end-of-year preparation for next year, 2020. And that was more one-on-one with our key experts who were giving them Business analysis is also critiquing their business. And that was the hard part for some people. They didn't want to hear some of those hard messages. You're not ready yet. Shift this. I don't know if the market's ready for that. Or, and also positive stuff, but really, most importantly, you have to hear those points that make you stop and think and reshift. Because if someone, if no one does, doesn't tell you, how do you fi- fix it? Right? right? You can't fix it if you're not, if you're not told. Right. So my point is to be very honest. And show them what they need to do to succeed. And so some had a hard time with it. But yeah. really, it's important. How do you grow if you don't have that? Right. The candid feedback is right. necessary to, to, to hear the hard truths. criticism. Constructive criticism. Now, we started with your business. I want to end with your business as well because you recently launched a new CBD line, Urban Goddess. Obviously, there are a lot of challenges specific to this industry. How are you approaching this product line differently than what you've done in the past? It's very new and I'm exciting, like starting all over from scratch again. Mm. Uh, so this is really focused on women, not just texture and curls. This is all about making all the women in the world unleash their inner goddess and relieve their stress, their pain, their depression, and let them be the best women they can be. So it's really talking in a girl next door approach mm-hmm. to the women of the world to say, no matter what you're dealing with, you have an opportunity here to be the best you. And that's how we're approaching and talking to our consumer. And it's a totally different look than anything you see on the market. It's really all about being a natural, amazing goddess in your own right. So it's more broad. It's not really a niche uh, specific market. Right.
That does it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.